Back on Memorial Day weekend, uh, we began this teaching series on the New Testament book of Galatians. Today we're at the transition point in this letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul, where he is summarizing his argument up until this point and uh, gives us some practical applications to what he's trying to uh, teach. He is, he is arguing for Christian freedom, and now he begins to apply that freedom to real life. Um, but the question that we need to wrestle with is exactly what is Christian freedom? Both uh, the nature of Christian freedom and the application of it are very countercultural to our world today. But today we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5, and that is a summary of all that Paul has argued for uh, to this point. And he says that Christians have been set free by Christ, and we are to stand in that freedom and not revert to the slavery of the Mosaic uh, law, law of the Old Testament. Now, slavery is not a popular uh, word in our culture today because of all the connotations to human cruelty and suffering, but I'm using that terminology because the Scripture does, and, and uh, it, is, it refers to the slavery from which Christ has freed us to the Old Testament law, and, and specifically... Um, uh, trying to be made right with God by our own good works, trying to uh, find God's acceptance by avoiding sin or observing religious rituals, all of that kind of stuff. This is slavery, Paul says, that is doomed to defeat. So God's law was never meant to be something that we use to earn God's favor. It was given to show us how, fall, how far we fall short of God's a perfect standard and show how impossible it is for us to earn God's acceptance uh, by law keeping. So the freedom that Christ gives is a freedom that is found in grace. And when we simply put our faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us not guilty. We are forever free from the condemnation. That this is not because we be somehow become perfect. Uh, in our behavior, but because Christ has already paid the penalty for our sin, uh, past, present, and future. And that's why St. Paul says that Christ followers have a hope that no one else really uh, understands. So we'll talk about more uh, later about the only thing that really matters as we continue to explore what it means to be free in Jesus Christ. But let's pray together for a moment, shall we? God of majesty and power, you have given us um, a knowledge of yourself and your will in the words of Scripture. However, we confess that so often we ignore that clear teaching about how we should believe or do or what we should hope for. Instead, we try to follow our own impulses and our own dreams. And we ask today that you would forgive us and open our minds and our hearts once more to your eternal truth so that we may draw closer to you to your plan and purpose for our lives and to your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. These are the closing words of the Declaration of Independence. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare 
that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Our nation is almost 240 years old, making the United States of America the longest lasting democracy in history. Our existence as a nation goes back to that day in July of 1776 when 56 brave patriots signed the Declaration of Independence. I find it striking that twice in the closing sentences the Declaration appeals to God, referring to him as the supreme judge of the world and divine providence. To read these stirring words is to remember that freedom is never free. This nation was founded by people who were willing to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And the continuing price of freedom is eternal vigilance. What is purchased with blood can be quickly lost through careless disinterest. In the Adirondack Mountains of New York, uh, you will find Lake Placid, site of the 1980 Winter Olympics. In the area is a sign pointing out that John Brown's farmhouse was nearby, and another sign telling tourists that he was buried near his farm. I don't know whether that name means anything to you, but to someone intrigued by the history of the Civil War, it piqued my interest. John Brown was a fiery abolitionist who settled in the Lake Placid area, hoping to help escaped slaves start a new life. Later, he traveled to Kansas, where he took up arms to ensure the Kansas Territory would enter the Union as a free state. He is perhaps most remembered for his daring raid on the armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia, in October of 1859. He's, he and a handful of men, including his three children, uh, took over the armory, hoping to incite a general insurrection that would lead to the end of slavery. Eventually, John Brown was taken into custody, was tried, and sentenced to death by hanging. During his trial, he defended his actions by referring to the words of Jesus in the New Testament about caring for the least of these. And then he said something like this, if it be thought necessary that my blood should be mingled with the blood of millions of those who suffer because of wicked laws, then let it be so. After he was put to death on December of, uh, 2nd, his body was buried near his farm, uh, Lake Placid area, December 8, 1859. In his lifetime and after his death, he was regarded by many people in both the North and the South as an unstable fanatic. But from the standpoint of over a century and a half later, we can clearly see that he helped light the fuse that led to the war that ultimately freed the slaves. Now, war was probably coming in any case, but he forced the issue into Americans' consciousness in a way that could not be ignored. To stand before the grave of such a man leads one to reflect that freedom comes at a very high price. We have to fight for freedom. If this is true, this is true in every sense. We think about a person with cancer who fights to be made well. We think about a couple in deep debt that fights to become financially free. We think about some folks in it with addictions to alcohol or drugs who struggle to be, uh, to be free. Sometimes we have to fight to save the things most valuable to us. 
But of all the freedoms in the world, the most basic and the most precious is spiritual freedom. In John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free, then you are truly free. The freedom that Jesus gives is freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from the burden of a painful past. And to those who trust him, he gives the freedom to know God, to love God, to serve God with joy. And with Jesus, when Jesus sets us free, we can be all that we were ever meant to be. We are free to discover our destiny. We are free to fulfill God's purpose for our life. This sort of freedom, however, demands a choice. We have to stand and fight for what's right. Freedom doesn't just happen. And that brings us to our text this morning from Galatians chapter 5, the first 12 verses. We have now entered the third and final section of this book, which kind of falls neatly into three categories. The chapters 1 and 2 are much more personal in nature. Chapters 3 and 4, more doctrinal or theological. And then chapters 5 and 6 are more practical. The first 12 verses of Galatians 5 are like a lawyer's closing statement to the jury. Here the Apostle Paul summons all of his rhetorical power to make one final assault on the Judaizers who were teaching a false gospel built around circumcision and the Jewish law. And as he presses for a decision, he uses some pretty strong language. In verse 12, we, uh, we see Paul's righteous anger against these Judaizers. And he says, I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Well, that sounds pretty strange to our ears today. And the words reveal the crisis that was developing in this church of new believers at Galatia. This was nothing less than a battle for the hearts and the minds of these new Christians. Their liberty in Christ was at stake. So Paul challenges the Galatian believers to make a decisive choice for Christ, for grace, for freedom, for the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at the choices that Paul sets before them. And the first choice is between slavery and freedom. In verse 1, he says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Our most basic choice is between slavery and freedom. This verse tells us why Christ came, and that was to set us free. It also tells us what we have to do to maintain that freedom, and that is to stand firm in our faith. And it warns us about what we must avoid, and that is the entangling yoke of slavery. And the critical point is that freedom comes at, a, at the cost of continual awareness. If we are to be free from the yoke of slavery to the law, we must take our position in Christ every day and stand firm, stand our ground against anything and anyone who would steal that freedom from us. Underlying this is the reality that grace and works as a means of gaining God's favor don't mix together. Either we're made right with God wholly and only by God's grace, or we feel like we have to do something to earn God's favor. And the two options are mutually exclusive. The problem is that we live in a performance-based world. There are preachers who lay a, a yoke of guilt on their people by adding demands to the Christian faith that don't come from the Bible. They set out rules of conduct. They make rules virtually equivalent to God's will for their followers. 
And those who refuse to follow the rules are regarded as less spiritual or worldly or people who have turned their backs on the faith. And I know that because I grew up in a church like that. The biblical position is not that rules are wrong. All of us need rules to help make good decisions, but we must not think that merely by obeying human rules have we earned God's favor. In the same way others may put us down and may say that we're unfit, unworthy, a total disappointment, people may think we're a failure in life, in that case we must not let their judgment on us become the way we judge ourselves. While reading the biography of G. Campbell Morgan, the great British Bible teacher of a past generation, we discovered that as a young man he was rejected as a candidate for ministry by the Methodist Church. And although he went on to worldwide fame, he never forgot the sting of that rejection. And uh, he called his father with that news. His father wired back an abrupt message that just simply said, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. And so it is for all of us. No one passes through this life without feeling the pain of rejection by other people. But standing firm in our freedom enables us to learn from our defeats and not be defeated by them. It happens in our marriages. Our spouse may send the message that we are only loved conditionally as long as we meet certain expectations. We see it in business. Employers sometimes do the same thing. We see it even in football coaches. One, once when a place kicker was about to attempt the game-winning field goal, he asked his coach, he said, Coach, if I miss this kick, will you still like me? And the coach replied, I'll still like you, but I'll miss you. <laughs> so how do we stand firm in our freedom when we live in a performance-based world? The answer must be that we continually remind ourselves and do it many times a day if necessary that while we may not measure up to our own standards, much less anybody else's, God has already declared that we belong to his son. Because we are in Christ, Christ now lives in us. And that's the basis of our assurance, that we are children of God, that our position in God's family is secure, that we haven't, you know, that we've been set free from the guilt of sin, we've been set free uh, from the power of sin, and someday we will be entirely set free from the presence of sin. One of the implications of this verse is that it is impossible for us to again be enslaved to the law unless we voluntarily allow that to happen. No one can chain us up again unless we willingly surrender our freedom. So Paul would say, stand firm in your faith, for it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Here's the second choice, and that is between law and grace. In verses 2 through 4, Paul explains the disastrous consequences of choosing to go back to the Old Testament law as a means of pleasing God. And he uses circumcision as the example because this is the particular issue that's troubling the Galatians. No doubt his readers need to hear these strong words because it seemed like to them only a minor thing, a tiny operation, a small concession to these false teachers, but his point is that when it comes to freedom, there is no small concessions. Even small decisions have enormous consequences. So Paul says, if you give in to these Judaizers, then Christ is of no benefit to you. Listen to verse 2. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. 
This verse needs to be compared with verse 6 where Paul says that circumcision doesn't matter one way or the other. It's not a meritorious act. It's not a sin in and of itself. But to be circumcised under these circumstances would be to reject the gospel of God's grace. It would be like saying, Christ is not enough for me. I need to be circumcised also. In that case, a person has lost the benefit that Christ came to secure. We've turned our freedom into chains of slavery. Secondly, Paul says, if you give in to these false teachers, you are obligated to, to obey the whole law. Verse 3, I say it again, if you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. The law is not something that we can say, well, I think I'll obey this commandment and maybe not this one. I'll observe this feast day, but not that one. The law of God is all, an all or nothing proposition. James, uh, in James' uh, letter in chapter 2, verse 10, he reminds us if we offend at one point of the law, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. The law is like a chain of many links that joins earth and heaven. Just break one link and we've broken them all. So Paul says, don't open the door, thinking that you can stop with one thing. Once you walk through that door, you're obligated to keep the whole law, all of it, all the time. And then thirdly, Paul says, if you give in to the Judaizers, you have abandoned the gospel of grace. Verse 4, for if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. In evaluating this verse, it's important to remember that it's not a statement about personal salvation. Paul's concern here is about the implications of following a false doctrine. It's not about personal sin, but about the dangers of substituting law for grace. Once we turn our back on the law as a means of pleasing God, we have abandoned the gospel of grace. And this verse is like a road sign saying, hey, there's danger ahead. Turn back before it's too late. See, our greatest problem with this passage is in the 21st century, it's really hard to get worked up about this whole subject one way or the other. I've never met anyone who is out there teaching what these Judaizers were teaching. For that reason, it's easy to think that none of this discussion about circumcision or the law is really applies to us, but the principle remains the same, remains relevant that small decisions often have big consequences especially when the gospel itself is at stake. I like the statement that motivational speaker Zig Ziglar says, he says, a person who will compromise once will do it again. Paul would agree with that sentiment, which explains why he writes this letter in the first place. And then here's the third choice between circumcision or the cross. Paul now turns from addressing the issue of circumcision itself to addressing the issue of false teachers and the bad influence that they had on these Galatian believers. And in the next few verses, he points out five dangers of living by the law instead of living by grace. Paul says, if you give in to the Judaizers, it stops your spiritual progress. Verse 7, you were running the race so well, who has held you back from following this, the truth? And he paints the picture of a runner who's doing well until somebody cuts in and knocks them off stride. And this is what these false teachers had done, it's sobering to realize that all of us are either helping or hindering other people in their journey to God by the way we live. So I think it's a great question to ask ourselves, does my example, does the example of my life bring my friends closer to Christ or is it pulling them further away? 
Who is it that pulls us away from God? Verse 8, Paul says, It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. Paul wants the Galatians to know that although these false teachers claim to be speaking for God, it wasn't true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's God's will that his children be free, not bound up by the chains of suffocating legalism. There are several things that he talks about what legalism, uh, how it affects us. First, it leads to other errors. Verse 9, the false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. And Paul reminds these Galatians that one act of disobedience leads to another, just as you have to tell a second lie and a third lie and a fourth lie to cover up the first lie. Even so, he says, one sin, even a small one, leads to more sin. In that case, even taking a tiny step toward the Old Testament law would lead these Galatians to total enslavement. Secondly, he says, legalism produces spiritual confusion. Verse 10, I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever it is, who has been confusing you. It seems that Paul really doesn't know these false teachers personally, who were misleading the Galatians. He knows, though, that they will be judged by God for teaching a false doctrine to these impressionable young Christians. Their emphasis on circumcision had led them to an enormous confusion and caused many of them to waver in their trust of the Lord. Thirdly, Paul says, legalism removes the stigma of the cross. Look at verse 11. Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you would be circumcised, as some say I do, why would I still be persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. Paul could have avoided all of this controversy if he would just stop preaching the cross of Christ as the hope of salvation. If he would just start preaching that going back to the Old Testament law was okay, his critics would have been happy, they would have left him alone, but that's not something Paul could do. The cross was the center of his faith. Let others preach what they wanted to, but he was going to preach Christ crucified. In the cross, there's forgiveness, there's freedom, there's new life, there's abundant life, there's access to God, there's membership in God's family, there is redemption, there's peace, of God, peace with God, there is eternal life, and there is hope of heaven. And Paul says, why would anybody exchange all of that for failed legalism? See, Paul was persecuted because he preached the cross as the way of salvation. Some didn't want to hear that message, so they attacked the messenger. And the world hasn't really changed its opinion in 2,000 years. Uh, it hasn't been that long since I read a news report of an employee who was threatened with dismissal for wearing a, a chain necklace with a cross around her neck. Such a symbol was considered offensive to the people who worked with her, and some thought it as a threat and called it a hostile work environment. But that shouldn't surprise us. The cross has always been controversial, and there's always been people who've been offended uh, when we boldly proclaim the cross of Christ to which our response should be, so what? People get offended when we preach the cross, let them be offended. That's not a call for rude or offensive behavior or unkindness. It's a call for Christians to stand firm in their faith. Never be ashamed of the cross. Never fear to own the name of Christ in public. Never back down when you're questioned what you believe in. Instead, stand up for Jesus. Don't get angry when people disagree with you. If anybody gets angry, let it be somebody else, but let the people of God rally around the cross of Christ and proclaim the message of salvation. 
Now, I suppose someone could ask why we are so insistent on what we believe. Why do we fight so hard for the truth of the gospel? And I find the answer in Galatians 5, 5 and 6, where Paul says, But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is our faith being expressed, expressing itself in love. See, our hope is in God alone. All that we need comes from him. The righteousness we need is found in Jesus Christ, and that righteousness comes by virtue of his death on the cross. God doesn't care whether or not we follow every detail of the Old Testament law. The only thing that matters is true saving faith that expresses itself in a life that's motivated by love. Let me wrap up this morning's message real quickly with three simple conclusions or applications. One, when it comes to the gospel, there can be no compromise. As a church, we will gladly discuss a lot of issues, you know, methods of baptism, the correct form of church government, uh, all kinds of things. But where the gospel is concerned, there can't be compromise. We believe the story of the New Testament. We believe that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day. We believe that apart from true faith in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. We preach salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ, and in this we stand with a lot of most other Protestant uh, believers everywhere. We will not water down the message. We will not back down simply because some people find the gospel offensive. Instead, we seek to live in a way that, that our conduct makes the gospel an attractive message, but we will not change the message to conform to the political whims of our day because even small compromises produce disastrous results. Two, the only thing that matters is knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In the end, it is faith in Christ that moves the heart of God. When we tell God that we're trusting his Son as our Savior, we are saved, we're born again, we're redeemed, we're reconciled, we're welcomed into God's family, we're adopted, we're justified, we're given eternal life, and all of that is a free gift. A free gift for those who wholeheartedly trust in Jesus Christ. Every time a person accepts Jesus as their Savior, it is a cause for great rejoicing. So never give up on your friends or loved ones who may not be there yet. Those who have seemed so hard against uh, the Lord today may, by God's grace, be drawn to the Savior in the future. So keep praying and believing. And then here's the last one. The way to heaven is simple because God has made it simple. Anyone, anywhere can be made right with God. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior by faith. And so my question for you today is, do you know him? Are you trusting in him? I, I heard about a cartoon that depicts a person standing at the gate of heaven and God's asking them something like, why should I let you into my heaven? And this guy uh, starts to give his reply and he details every good work he's ever done, all the money he's ever given to charity, all the Sundays he taught a Sunday school class, and the list just goes on and on and on. And, and then finally there's a pause and God says, is that your final answer? What will we say when we stand before the Lord and he asks us why we should be admitted? Will we reply with one of those answers, you know, like, hey, I was raised Catholic or... I'm a fourth-generation Presbyterian, or I attended Lutheran school, or Pastor Rod baptized me, or I do a lot of good deeds, I give a lot of money to charity, I'm a leader in my church, I'm a good person. 
you'll need, a, have to, we'll need a better answer than any of those. Jesus Christ needs to be our final answer, and the gates of heaven will swing open for us. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we receive that through faith. Let's pray. God, you are the one who leads us from darkness into light, from captivity into freedom, from anxiety into peace, from despair into joy. And yet we long to just separate ourselves from you, choosing to be independent, convinced of our own uh, wisdom, forgetting your love and grace. God, forgive us and draw us close to you this day. Hold us in your loving arms. Enable us to follow you in worship and in service each day of our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.